Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. Each and every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis. And when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I now know that it's possible to live a decent, if changed life, post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this. My guest today is quite simply one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease nine years ago at the age of 58, after an initial slump into depression, she has since devoted her time and precious energy to raising awareness of dementia. Frequently appearing on our broadcast media, she's a familiar face on the breakfast time sofas and speaking at major conferences. She is Wendy Mitchell. Wendy's blog, Which Me Am I Today, remains one of my favourite reads and in writing it, she's created her own paper memory, something that has enabled her to produce two Sunday Times best-selling books about dementia, Somebody I Used to Know and What I Wish People Knew About Dementia, both of which were written in collaboration with journalist Anna Wharton. This summer, Wendy's third book, One Last Thing, was published to great acclaim. As with all Wendy's writings, it comes from the heart and is honest, insightful and highly readable. Which, given its subject matter, is no mean feat. For one last thing deals with that most feared of subjects, death and dying. Though, as Wendy says herself, since her dementia diagnosis, she doesn't fear anything anymore, including death. In her book, Wendy turns her mind to the serious matter of her future, which, as it does for all of us, involves her death. In order that she may fully appreciate living now, she explores this knotty, difficult topic through conversations with different people, including friends living with dementia and experts in various aspects of end of life, such as the legal practicalities and medical choices here in the UK. Often, she turns the spotlight onto herself, As dementia dilutes my personhood, she writes, I cling to those things that make me who I am. A mum, a blogger, a walker and a photographer. For me, once those parts of me have been taken by this cruel disease, I'll have lost my personhood and would prefer death to an existence of snapshots of joy, as the time spent in confusion would far outnumber those moments choice and control. These two words, these vital elements of life occur again and again in Wendy's book and I'm keen to talk to her about them. So without further ado, let's get going. Wendy's, I welcome you, Wendy, 
for the second time to Well I Know Now. Thank you so much, Pippa. Lovely to be talking to you again. Yes, and Wendy and I always do these via Zoom so we can actually see each other, which is a which is yeah. really lovely. I can see you there. So that's yeah. great. So let's start with choice. Because when I read your book, and it really is a very, very good book, I recommend it to anybody. It seemed to me that in many ways choice is what it's all about. How much we have how much choice we have, and when we don't have it as well, which is sort of really the knotty bit of your book. So would you like to tell us, Wendy, why choice and with it, control are so important to you? Well, in my opinion, and and remember my book is my opinion, and I don't expect everybody to agree with it, but it would be nice for my opinion to be listened to. And regarding choice, I think the only choice we shouldn't have in life is when we're born, whether we're born. Because the rest of our life, we choose the different paths that we take and they lead down various parts of our life. And some people make bad choices and they have to pay the penalties. We're forever being told by the NHS to take control of our health. Mm. And yet the only choice we don't have is over how we die. What a good death means to us. Mm. And it will mean different things to different people. Mm. But that's their choice. And right now in this country, we don't have any assisted dying laws. Mm, mm, So mm. that choice isn't even available to us. You know, we, we have a wonderful palliative care system, yet the government only funds 30% of it. The rest of it is all funded from people knitting and selling cakes and Mm. everything else. Mm. Mm. That's how much value we place as a society on dying. Mm. And that seems just criminal. That's so true, Wendy, so true. Mm. Why do you think that is, given that, as you say, it's so important how we die? Well, the... I wouldn't slam the NHS because it is a... I worked there for 20 years. Mm. I adore the NHS. And it's come on in great leaps and bounds at finding new discoveries, Mm. new treatments. But that's all to keep people alive. Mm. They'll never find a cure for dying. Yeah. And so they're creating this aging population Mm. that's growing and growing and growing. And it's nothing new. We've known about it for years. Mm. And yet each successive government has ignored the the social care crisis that we're now in. Mm. Mm. And for me assisted dying laws 
would give me a choice of how long I wanted to live. Mm. I wouldn't want to be kept alive if the quality of my life wasn't what I think of as quality. It may be quality to other people. Everybody has a different view, but we have no choice. And what is it for you? How do you define your quality of life? And when, for you, does your quality of life become so diminished that you would rather not carry on? As a moment... I have the upper hand on dementia. Mm. I'm in control of my life more than dementia is. Mm. Dementia has that 49%, but I have the 51%. Mm. So I feel in control. I can still walk in the morning to see my sunrise, to take my photographs to walk miles and miles. I can still blog each day. I can still do all the things that matter to me. On the bad days, when dementia has that 51%, as long as I can think the words, tomorrow might be better, then I still feel as though I'm in control. Once those days become longer and dementia has the upper hand for longer, my control begins to slip away. And that's when the quality of my life will not be the quality I want. Mm. And in your book, you make the very good point. It comes up when you are discussing this subject with your three friends, Gail, Dory and George. And because dementia is going to take your mental capacity eventually, I think it's Gail who says, yes, but for us, when will that be? And will we know? And you say that's a million dollar question. It certainly is. And so that's why I concentrate on the quality of my life, the life I want as the Wendy I am now. Mm. I don't want to be the Wendy of the future when I'm reliant on other people, when I have no choice over when I eat, when I drink, when I get dressed, Mm. whether I go out. Mm. That is not a life for me. Mm. That's not a life I want for the future Wendy. The future Wendy may be perfectly happy, and people have said this to me dozens of times, Mm. but you might be happy Mm. just sat looking at photographs. And I say, yes, I don't want to be that person, no matter how happy she is. Mm. Mm. So you're very clear about that. Oh, absolutely. 
crystal clear. And how in this very difficult situation that we all find ourselves in in this country, as opposed to, say, countries where assisted dying is, is legal in some you know form or other, in limited yeah. forms. I mean, there's Canada since 2016, um, mm-hmm. and I think they've adopted it for the terminally ill in Colombia, United States, parts of it, New Zealand, Australia, Spain, Austria, Switzerland, yeah. Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, quite a few countries now. We are so far behind the civilised world. And yes, the people that are opposed to it say to me, yes, but what about the vulnerable people that maybe cajoled into taking that action? Yes. And I say to them, but that happens now. People are placed on a do not resuscitate register Mm. when they enter a care home Mm. without any conversation. Mm. Mm. That is just as bad for me Mm. as not having the conversation with them and their family. Mm. And yet it happens at so many care homes that they're placed on a DNR register without any knowledge to the family. Mm. Mm. And also, you know, cruel people exist. Mm. Cruel families exist. Mm. So again, it will always be like that. Mm. Mm. But it's having the choice. I spoke to some people in America, I think it was, Mm. and they have the choice Mm. in certain states. Yes, yes. Whether they get the... I call it the magic bottle, the magic potion. Yes. But whatever it is. And statistics reveal that most people who receive that magic potion don't actually take their own life. Right. But they've got the choice. It's just there, yeah. It's there. Mm -hmm. And... They instead concentrate on living Mm, mm. and the choice comes later on Mm. because there's no urgency Mm. anymore. That's a point that comes through very strongly in your book, that the reason you want to think about these things now, to have these difficult conversations with your daughters, the two most important people in your life, Mm. and that's hard, you know, it's hard on them and it's hard on you, but the reason you want to have them is so that you can sort of then set it aside and get on with living. That's right. The, you know, the one thing that is going to happen to 100% of the population yeah. in the world yeah. is we're going to die. Yeah. And yet we, we're so fearful of talking mm. about mm. it. Mm. But if you talk, and yes, it is difficult... Mm. And yes, it was difficult for me and my daughters. Mm. But wouldn't it have been strange if it hadn't have been difficult? It's a difficult conversation. Absolutely. And you say in your book, nothing is made worse by talking about it. And also there's, yes, there's a lovely, I think you describe when you're talking to your daughters, actually, because you've, this is quite a tricky subject, isn't it? But you've, I mean, practically and, and, and technically... But you have got what is referred to as an advanced decision to refuse treatment. 
an ADRT, yes. which is legal in this country, and it yes. must and it must include the statement, I refuse this treatment or treatments, even if my life is shortened or ended as a result. And that has to be yes. witnessed by somebody. Yeah. And as you say, which sounded sensible to me, a GP is a good person because they can also verify that you have mental capacity at the time that you make that statement. You discussed all this, which is very sensitive and difficult with your daughters. And you've gone through it all. You thought about it and they asked you quite rightly. They challenged you gently on it. And you say, as I answered each scenario gently and confidently, I saw the understanding dawning in their eyes. All the grey areas they needed clarifying, I was able to turn to black and white. I felt immense pride, relief, and this got me this bit, and yes, love, because it's about love, isn't it, even though it's hard? It is. As they told me individually that they understood my wishes. It feels wrong to say they were happy with the part they would need to play in enacting them, if and when the time comes, where they will be speaking on my behalf, but I think they felt more confident that they understood exactly what I was asking of them. I've been through this, uh, Wendy, with my own parents yeah. who've been dead for a while yeah. now, but I have to say that is so important. And we didn't really have the conversations, me and my parents. And I remember the palliative consultant for my dad saying to me when I said, but if he doesn't say what he wants and he is now past the stage of being able to say what he wants, what happens? And she looked at me with immense understanding and said, you have to decide. And I That's wish right. I'd had the conversations that you had with your daughters, Wendy. Yeah. I say it's the greatest gift mm -hmm. you can give your children because you're relinquishing that immense yes. stress yes. and decision-making. Yes. At a time when... You can't cope with any more. Yes. You know, you're coping with your your dearest one dying or possibly dying. Yes. You know, you're then, if you don't have the conversations, you're then asking your children to make those decisions for you. Mm. That seems so... I wouldn't want the two most precious people to me to have to make those incredibly stressful decisions mm. at a time when they're least able. Mm. I wouldn't want to put them in that position. Mm. I, I don't think they're difficult conversations. I think they're uncomfortable. Yes, yes, that's a better they're word. They're uncomfortable for everyone. Yes. But it's amazing, once you've had them, the relief on everybody's face. Yes, yes. Yes, because it's done. But you can then file away and get on with life, mm. Mm. knowing that you've gifted your children that knowledge of what to say when you can no longer say it yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. And for you, when you're talking to... You also talked to an expert in palliative care, didn't you, um, Claire? And you've talked to Catherine Mannix, a uh, palliative care specialist as well. So you did a lot of talking to different people and your mm -hmm. friends with dementia and your daughters. And for you, you told them that this cutting off point for you, 
as you said just now, it is when you don't think that tomorrow will be a better day, when there are these moments of hope. And as you said in the piece I read, you don't want them to be just really rare moments. No. So also another cut-off point is, which I found very interesting, that you don't want to be admitted to hospital. Can you explain that decision of yours? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This, that's been in place for many years. A hospital is a dreadful place for someone with dementia. Yes. It's a, so difficult. And for some people, they can't avoid it. But for me, last Christmas, I broke my wrist. Yes. And I knew I needed an operation. I'd broken it in several places, dislocated it. I'd done it good and proper. But when me and my daughters went to see the consultant, the first words he said before even opening my mouth were, well, on paper, you don't need an operation. You've got dementia. What do you need a left hand for? Crikey. And you can imagine the stunned faces on myself and Sarah. Absolutely. Luckily, Sarah... Sarah found her voice mm. and told him exactly why I needed a left hand. <laughs> it hit him round the head, I should think. <laughs> but, but then I found my voice and told him exactly why I needed a left hand. Mm. And he gracefully backed down. Right. And I'm not saying he understood, mm. but he got the message that he wasn't leaving that room without agreeing to operate on my hand. Mm. So some days I feel like we've gone 20 steps forward. Yes. And days like that, mm. I feel we've gone hundreds back. But the anaesthetist that we saw in the day clinic before the operation, he agreed that the hospital wasn't the best place for me. Mm. And he agreed to do it on day surgery mm. because whenever he can, he operates on people with dementia in day surgery. Mm. So he mm. understood mm. and I was able to have day surgery and go home with Sarah. Mm. Mm. No unfamiliar surroundings. Mm. Sarah was able to stay with me because our hospital supports John's campaign. Yes. So in the, although many people weren't allowed relatives with them, I was because we knew Sarah works for the trust. She knew there standing on John's campaign. Let's just explain to listeners who don't know that John's campaign is so that people, the relatives, the loved ones of people with dementia, when they are in hospital, they can stay with them. Absolutely. And what some hospitals don't understand is that our care partners are there to help them. Mm -hmm. Because if we're without them, we're distressed mm -hmm. and we're all maybe uncooperative absolutely or silent or mm. just so distressed we mm. don't eat drink 
Mm. Or anything. And take more time and resources from the hospital as a result. That's right. So our care partners are there to help them. Mm. So I don't want to put myself in that position Mm. where I get admitted to a ward that doesn't understand. Mm. It's a real flip of the coin. Well, I was just thinking that when you said it was the anaesthetist, so often it is the luck of the draw as to who you bump into along your way. You might have got a very unsympathetic anaesthetist, or not unsympathetic, that's the wrong word, but a person who didn't understand what having dementia is like and and so, you know, had no awareness of what was going to help you. Yes, but you happened luckily. Yeah. Mm, I mean, but but it could have been very lucky. It's down to chance. It is, and it shouldn't be. Absolutely. Down to chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if I get knocked over by the proverbial bus... Yes. It's on my records now that they're not to give me any treatment that will sustain my life. And I'm, I'm prepared even now to end my life if that's the choice I have at that moment, if I get knocked over by the proverbial boss tomorrow, I will be happy to die because it will relieve me from that trauma of not having a choice later on. I was questioned so many times. Mm, mm. I have a wonderful GP. And that's the other point I want to make. Please go and see the same GP mm, mm. because they then know your thought processes throughout the years. Mm. They know you well. And, yes, it is hard to get the same GP. I was just thinking that as you said that, easier said yeah, than done. But I wait for mine. Mm. And also, I mean, I'm very, very lucky that I can contact my GP by email yes so i built up a relationship with my surgery yes because i can't use the phone Mm. i can contact my gp by email yes so i can leave it to my gp to decide how urgent it is yes i tell her the problem Mm. and if she says it can wait a month Mm. it can wait a month Mm. But if it can't, she will fit me in. Mm, mm. These human relationships are so important, aren't they? These connections you oh, make, the continuity. So, so absolutely. Yes. Yes. And plus it makes me feel safe. Of course. You know, my daughters don't have to take time off yes. to come to appointments with me because I take my little book. Yes. And on my little book I have what my problem is. But more importantly, underneath... She writes what the outcome is. The GP does? The GP does. Perfect. So I can show my daughter. When you get home. It Mm. it takes her seconds. So actually you're remaining independent for longer and again you're taking some of the strain off the NHS. So it all makes sense. That is right. Yes. Just by these minor Mm, uh, mm -hmm. adaptions. And Wendy, how did you... Oh, I know you've got a daughter who is in a profession that means that she knows, but... How do other people, because you explain this very well in the book, go about understanding all these different 
things which are mind-boggling and there are so many acronyms. So you've got the Advanced Decision to Refuse Treatment, ADRT. A lot of us know about DNR, Do Not Resuscitate. There's also Do Not Attempt Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation, DNACPR. And then, of course, there's the LPAs, the Lasting Powers of Attorney. I mean, I suppose the easiest thing for us to do is to signpost some sites that people can go to or organisations that help you through this morass, this maze of language and acronyms that are totally confusing and frightening. Absolutely. There's no wonder people don't fill in all the forms. Mm, Quite. Because it's so... There's so many of them. It's bewildering. And you don't know what you don't know, so where do you start? My first port of call... Yes. ...was... And I don't even know if this is in every region, but my respect form, that's, that's another form. But that's what I started off with, with my GP. What is a respect form? A respect form is, again, a legal document that's registered with your GP on their system, but also on the ambulance system as well. Okay. And it details... Do not resuscitate. It details, do not give me a feeding tube. It details all those things. But the reason why you must start with your GP is because she knows the language that you have to write. If you write it in any other language, in layman's terms, it won't be understood as well as if you have the help of your GP to write it, because she has to sign it. Am I right in thinking, though, that the respect form doesn't have legal clout, but the ADRT does? Yeah, I got that wrong, sorry. but no, the Don't worry. The respect form is the one, amazingly, the one that is on the GP system yes. and the ambulance system. yes. But it doesn't really have a legal standing. It doesn't have a legal standing, but it highlights yes. them. Yes. Yes, I see. Your wishes, but also that you may have other things in place. Yes. But it's really important then, Wendy, isn't it, to get the ADRT? How confused how confusing is that for a start? Yeah, it it is so confusing. And the ADRT isn't on. The ambulance system. Why not? I mean, why not? <laughs> I ask, I know it is so incredibly stupid. But also, what's stupid is that my respect form is on my my county's ambulance system. Yeah. If I knocked over by the proverbial bus in the next county, it wouldn't be on there. Oh, for goodness' sake. Because they're all on different systems. Yes, yes, yes. So again, we don't make things easy for people in this country. We seem to make them almost, I mean, I'm not sure, I know we don't, but it's almost like it's purposely obtuse and obscure, and it doesn't it? It is. I mean, it really unbelievable, is. really. Um, yeah. But there are some organisations that help you through this minefield of, I mean, I know we both know, Zoe Harris, who founded My Care Matters yeah. and now has, you know, done the Future Care Handbook. 
and yeah. has people who will help you through it. I mean, I think everybody does need somebody to help them they through They really do. And the Future Care Handbook is a fantastic starting point because it's simple. Mm. Yes. I think we all want something simple, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to start off simply so that it doesn't put you off continuing. Quite, quite. And that's what that does. It eases you into all this complex paperwork that exists. Yes. So we won't get bogged down too much in that, but I did just want to highlight to people that there are two forms nowadays. This has changed since a long while ago when my parents died, but with the lasting power of attorney, there are two forms. The first one is the health and welfare LPA, and that's only triggered once you lose mental capacity. And the other one, the second LPA, is for property and financial. So I think that's just a fairly simple but important point. And actually, Claire Fuller, oh, I've forgotten her title. In 2020, Claire, who had been a nurse in palliative care for 30 years, and then in 2020, she set up Speak For Me. And this helps people to set up their lasting powers of attorney. Yes, so it is worth mentioning that, and I can signpost this at the end too. So, yes, we've we've given you just two there, and I'm sure there are others, but there's the My Future Care Handbook and there's the Speak For Me that would be helpful. But the interesting thing about all these forms is they're totally irrelevant if you haven't spoken to your loved ones Correct. about what you've actually written on them. Because the lasting power of attorney, you've hand, all you're doing is handing over your voice to someone else. But if you haven't told them what you want, they can't speak for you. What an important point, Wendy. Mm. What an important point. Because actually, if I had lasting power of attorney over both my parents, and it had been set up several years before I needed it. But when it came to it, it's exactly what you're saying. I was then confronting the palliative consultant as my dad was nearing the end of his life, looking into her eyes and saying, but I don't know and you don't know because he's now beyond telling you. And so I had to make the decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very, very, very good point. But it's no good having the LPA or whatever it is unless you know what the person you have it for actually wants. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, so also, I I don't I think this is sort of, this is one of the very few good points. There are some sort of little tiny glimmers that are quite good about dementia. And there are some things that are, you know, I suppose these little tiny sort of fragments that are quite positive, really, when you do face death. And that is that you say you don't fear anything anymore. Once you were diagnosed with dementia, you'd confronted your biggest fear. So now what else was there? So list some of the things, or I will, that you've done that fill me with absolute terror, wing-walking, abseiling. Um, mm. I mean, actually, in September, correct me if I get this wrong, I think you're going to abseil down London's 225-metre-tall Leadenhall building. Why on earth oh. would you want to do that? <laughs> uh, I, I do these things <laughs> to show people that I can. Yep. I understand that. So much is concentrated on what we can't do. And I know 
everybody wouldn't want to jump out of an aeroplane. No, absolutely never going to do that. Sail down. But, you know, everybody with dementia needs to remember that they can do more than they think they can do. Hmm. Hmm. And I just take it to extremes. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just love all these things now. I would never have done them in a million years before. <laughs> so that is it. so interesting, isn't it, that you would never, you'd have been more like me. You'd have been more like, I'm <laughs> never going to do that. I was afraid of my own shadow when I... Really? Before dementia. I was afraid of animals of all types. I was afraid I would cross the road if a dog was on the lead. Crikey. And yet now every dog in the village gets a hug from me on my morning walk. Yes, and your photographs of all the animals are wonderful. I mean, your photographs, Wendy, I think, for all of us, have been a massive, massive positive. And I remember when I spoke to you before, actually, or maybe it's in one of your books, but I tell quite a lot of people this. I thought, your photographs are really wonderful, and I keep saying to you, you should write a fourth book and it should be a photographic book with your photograph but you said that um because you get these details you know an insect on a leaf a caterpillar on a leaf and you you said because you are now sort of leading life at a slower rate than you used to you see these things whereas I I probably wouldn't Wendy because I'd dash about whereas you see them and they are as I said in my introduction in a way these Supposedly small things, as Sylvia Plath says, the snowfall, the caterpillar on the leaf, the droplet of rain on the petal, they are the beautiful, exquisite moments in life, aren't they? Absolutely. I was as guilty as anyone when I worked of wishing for the weekend, wishing for the next holiday, Mm. Mm. you know, wishing for the end of the day, rushing about here, there and everywhere. Mm. But dementia has taught me the importance of time. Yes. And it has slowed me down beyond belief Mm. because now I go out and I'm much slower. Mm. My eyes focus on tiny little things that Mm. would never have, I would never have seen before Mm. Mm. because I'm appreciating just what's around me more. Mm, mm. It just gives you that appreciation of time, mm. but appreciation of what a wonderful world we live in. Mm, mm. I'm very lucky with where I am, but everywhere I can be in the middle of London and see such beauty. Yes that maybe other people didn't see because I'm not rushing around. I'm just stopping for that moment and appreciating whatever I see. Yes, Wendy, and I think that leads us very nicely into a passage that we've chosen for you to read, and we'll finish on that. Because when you said your dementia has given you an appreciation of time, in a way that's what we've been talking about because you want to appreciate the time you have now And you can do that best by knowing, feeling secure in your mind, when you get to a place where you don't want any more of the life here and now in this world, you know, things are set for you, things are being prepared for. And this reading that you're going to read, it comes at the very end of your book. And it is about your lack of fear since being 
diagnosed. And it's actually when you've done, I can't remember actually, Wendy, this is a flight with a pilot. And then you see the pilot. And I'm trying to remember which of your many daring feats. Had you done a sky jump or? And this is the wing walk. The wing walk. You've done a wing walk, which fills me with complete and utter terror. And then, the, you know, you, you, you sort of see the pilot and this is what your thoughts are. But as well as talking about the fact that you no longer fear anything, as proved by the wing walk, which is actually terrifying, this also, this passage carries, I think, a profound message, which is that we're never really in control. So because of that, we need to live life to the full and live every moment while we can because we think we're in control, but then... Things happen out of the blue. Your dementia diagnosis, being hit by a bus. We're not really, in a way, in control. The only certainty we have in life Mm -hmm. is this very moment in time because no one knows what's around the corner. No, I suppose we have this moment in time and we have death. We do. Anyway, Wendy, we'll finish with you. Um, It's a rather lovely reading. Okay. The pilot came over with a video he'd made of the flight. And later on, when I watched it at home, I could hear him saying, just awesome. And it really was. I have said before that dementia has taken away fear from me in so many areas. Fear of the dark, fear of animals, fear of death. It means I can do these wacky things because the disease has pushed all all the what-ifs out of my head and, yes, replaced them with something that feels like wads of cotton wool some days. But we find the positives where we can. If dementia has made me more daring, if it has helped me to walk across hot coals, jump out of an aeroplane to skydive or stand on the wings of a plane as it soars 600 feet high in the sky, then I will see that for what it is, a gift. When it is time to release that hard grasp on life, when it is time to open your fingers a little, to feel more insistently the sands of time running through them, then there is no fear because you feel more deeply that what will be will be for all of us. You know more intuitively that control is and always was nothing more than an illusion. And it is then that you really get on with the business of living. Thank you, Wendy. That was beautifully read. Thank you very much for talking to me today. I had a lovely time. Thank you, Pippa. Wendy never disappoints me. Her dementia may worsen. Her speech is a little slower now than when we first met a good six or seven years ago. But her words, when they come, remain as clear and honest as ever. Her insight into this cruel disease is deep and she has used it to raise awareness of what it means to live with it and now in her latest book of what it means to die with it. 
She always speaks of the practical issues such as powers of attorney, respect forms and ADRTs, but also of the deeper complexities of what's important in life and in death. Crucial to her is choice and with it, control. And yet she's shrewd enough to know that ultimately our control over life is limited. Things happen. We need to live now, savour every moment, make the most of our time. As she told me, dementia has taught me the importance of time. This is my last podcast for a while, so I will sign off and wish you all the very best in your lives. My Well I Know Now conversations have taught me so much, but the one very loud message from just about all my guests, and certainly Wendy, is to live every moment as if it were your last, to look for the positives and focus on what you can do, not what you can't, and to appreciate this incredible world we inhabit. Not a bad message to take away with me. Wendy's blog can be found at whichmeamitoday, all one word, dot wordpress.com, and her latest book, One Last Thing, How to Live with the End in Mind, published by Bloomsbury, is available on Amazon. You can discover more about Claire Fuller and her services, Claire is the advanced care planning advocate Wendy mentioned, at speakforme, all one word, dot co dot uk. While you can find My Future Care Handbook, an interactive book that helps people plan for later life, at myfuturecare, all one word, dot org. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast, and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.